Uh, So let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Ruth chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, uh, you have the first five books of the Bible, often called the Pentateuch. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then immediately after that, you have Joshua, Judges, and Ruth describing the time of the conquest and uh, into the time of the judges. And that's where the little book of Ruth fits. Uh, Ruth just has four chapters and we are in our uh, sixth sermon through this, uh, through this book. We only have uh, two more after this, uh, a, couple more chap- uh, a couple more sermons through chapter four. And today we're going to take a big chunk. We're going to look at chapter three, verses one through 18. Uh, I usually don't uh, work through a whole chapter at a time, uh, but this one divides out nicely, and, uh, and so we're going to look at Ruth 3, 1 through 18. You follow along as I read. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young women, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest 
but will settle the matter today. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that by your word, you speak to us, that it is the primary way that you reveal yourself and have revealed yourself uh, throughout these hundreds and thousands of years. You have made yourself known to people and we thank you that here and now we can read your word and understand that this is the way you speak to us. We also understand that just as the rain and the snow comes down and it does not return, but re-waters the earth and makes it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. We also understand that so shall your word that goes out from your mouth, that it does not return to you empty, but it accomplishes the thing for which you purpose it, and it succeeds in that for which you sent it. So we understand that this morning, that it's not an accident that we're hearing the words from Ruth chapter 3 and the scripture that will be uh, spoken about today. We understand that your word has power and purpose to change our hearts and to speak to us, to reveal yourself to us, to convict us of sin, to lead us in the righteous ways, to help strengthen our fellowship with you and each other. So we acknowledge the power that you have endowed in your word, and we ask that we would hear from you today. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, and not just that we would hear your word, but that we would put it into practice so that we can be like the person who built their life on a foundation of application of your word, and not the one who built their in the storms of life due to the application of your word that our lives would stand on your foundation name. Amen. Well, we're looking at, uh, at, at divides this chapter into four parts. Uh, he calls the, uh, this passage of Scripture uh, the plan. Naomi comes up with a plan for Ruth. Uh, he calls it um, the pr- uh, proposal, and that Ruth is proposing something to Boaz. Boaz responds to her with a promise. And then finally, there is provision. I normally don't do this. I normally don't preach uh, an entire chapter. And I often don't alliterate it with plan, proposal, I'm forgetting my own thing, uh, plan, proposal, promise, and provision. I'm not very good at that kind of preaching. But it helps when you're taking a chunk like this to divide it out into memorable parts. So I'm going to borrow that, and we're going to talk about it. But I have to be kind of honest with you. Even uh, from the moment I first sensed that we should work through Ruth, I knew that this chapter was coming. And, and I just said, oh Lord, what am I going to do with chapter 3? I, I don't know what this means. I wouldn't encourage any of my daughters to do this. Hey, get, you know, late at night... Um, Here's what you need to do, right? Just take a shower, okay, number one, uh, put on some makeup and get all cleaned up, and then cloak yourself, 
uh, go out into the night where all the guys are working and where they're probably drinking. That's what Bible language means when his heart was merry, right? He was a little tipsy. Um, make sure uh, you find out where this tipsy person is going to lie down and then just go over there and, and cover yourself up. Uh, I, as I was preparing for this, I had in mind some kind of weird Amish romance novel picture, uh, Love at the Threshing Floor, or some kind of a weird title. And so I just was not looking forward to this. Uh, and every week in the office, we would have these conversations. What are you going to do about the threshing floor? And I'm like, you know, don't remind me. I know it's coming, but I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what this means. And I don't, and there's got to be some kind of a cultural nuance that, that we don't understand, but, but something's going on here. And I have not been uh, necessarily looking forward to it, but uh, I am excited to be able to say to you um, that it is more wonderful than I had anticipated upon further review. So let's get back into the text and kind of understand, number one, the plan. This is the first time we really see Naomi um, acting and regarding Ruth. You remember Ruth uh, pledged her undying love in chapter one. Your God shall be my God. Your people shall be my people. Even after you die, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to follow you. Don't, if, you know, so uh, be it, if anything but death um, separates us. Ruth makes this amazing pledge to Naomi, and Naomi uh, doesn't say a word. Matter of fact, the next word you here coming out of Naomi's mouth is when she gets back to Bethlehem in chapter 2 and she says, you know, the Lord has brought me back empty. Um, Ruth is right there and has made this amazing pledge to her um, and, and Naomi has, all she has to say for it is that I'm bitter, don't call me Naomi anymore, don't call me pleasant or sweet, call me bitter, the Lord brought me back empty. And, and so this is the first time we really see Naomi um, responding to Ruth in a favorable, um, in an active way. And, and so now she says to her, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well for you. She said that the first time. In chapter 1, she told Ruth and Orpah, go back to Moab. Go back to your own people so that you may have rest and that it may go well for you. She says the same thing. The sentiment simply means go get married and have kids. That's where you'll find security. That's where you'll find your social welfare is in um, having children and in, in having a husband. And so she wishes that on them in Moab. Um, Orpah says, okay, I'll go back. Ruth says, no, I'm coming with you. So now she picks it up again in chapter 3. Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? And then she mentions that Boaz is a relative. Uh, he, she says he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, just if you keep these things in mind, um, Ruth and Naomi left Moab. It's a 10-day journey. They probably left sometime in March because chapter two says, uh, chapter one says at the very end, chapter 120, verse 22, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. That's April. Seven weeks later, uh, they celebrate the end of the harvest time with a, a second crop, the wheat harvest. So there's a seven-week period. The barley harvest is first. Once it comes through, then the wheat harvest comes through. And then there's this celebration. And then there's the harvesting. And there are all these parts. There's reaping. There's gathering. There's winnowing. Uh, there's, that happens at the threshing floor. And all of it, um, if you can think in your mind of a stock, uh, is, it's all supposed 
supposed to divide the stock from the head, from the grain, all the way down. Every process uh, is, is in division of that crop. And it takes a seven-week period of time for all that to happen. So within seven weeks, um, all of this is taking place between Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and all these provisions. He's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor, and this is the last push to find out if your crops will be successful, is that once you're down to the final part of the, of the harvest, you're just dealing with the grains, and that's where they're at. And he's going to guard his grain uh, by sleeping on the threshing floor, and the threshing floor was a working place. It was like a factory. Um, Ruth is going to go down to the threshing floor, and in chapter 4, you're going to find that Boaz is going to go up to the city gate. All that's necessary for a threshing floor is to go out to an open space where there's a breeze, and you've heard this uh, probably as you think about Psalm 1, uh, the wicked are not so, they are like chaff which the wind blows away. So all that meant is that um, uh, they were uh, with a pitchfork, throwing up the grain and the chaff and the head would separate itself as it was a light, worthless part, and the breeze would pick it up, but the heavier seed and grain would fall. And this was the process of gathering in the final part of the harvest. So he's there, and it's a working place, and there are many people there. Uh, Remember, it's also said in the backdrop of the judges, and if you want to know anything about the judges, in Judges 17, chapter 17 through 21, it's a wicked time. It's a time, it says, uh, in those days Israel had no king, and everybody just did whatever they wanted. There's violence, there's wickedness, there's sexual misconduct, they're following their own gods, they're stealing things, there's, there's um, chopping up of people. It's a really hideous time that if you need anything more, just read Judges 17 through 21, and you're going to find out that terrible things happen when we just kind of follow our own hearts. That's the evidence of it. And so against that backdrop, you have this working environment where bad things could happen, but you have Boaz who sticks out above everybody else as a godly man and a man of integrity, but he still has to guard his crop. So all this is happening at the threshing floor, and Naomi gives Ruth this plan. Before we move on to the plan in the second section, which is the proposal, I want you to notice something about a plan. A plan signals something. Think about the journey for Naomi. Naomi has come through a tragedy. Ten years. She was married to Elimelech. She had two children. Elimelech and Naomi took their two children, Malon and Kilion, to Moab to escape the famine. And in the process of that, They said, we'll just go there during the famine. And then it says that they were sojourning there. And then it says that they settled there. Once they settled there, Elimelech died. Terrible tragedy. Naomi is a widow, but at least she has two sons. They get married. And in the course of that marriage to Moabite women, it is identified as a national sin for Israel to marry Moabites so it's joy mixed with a, you know, a tinge of sinfulness and sadness. But then it's compounded because those two women are childless. They don't have children. And then her two sons die. So Naomi, whose name means pleasant, 
returns to Bethlehem and she tells everybody, don't call me pleasant, call me Mara because I'm bitter. She's bitter and she's angry and she's upset with the Lord. She said, the Lord took me away full and he's brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant? She has gone through this terrible time. And in the midst of that, um, she has experienced a, a, a you can't explain anything else other than just the response to tragedy. She is sad. She is grieving. She's a widow. She's depressed. Uh, anytime that Ruth goes out, Naomi, we have no uh, understanding of her activity at all. Um, other than she's waiting at home anytime Ruth comes home. But she has a plan here, and this plan signals something. Ruth's faith... And God's faithful activity to Ruth has elevated Ruth in the midst of her own grief and loss. See, because for Ruth, Ruth had a new beginning. She left her old family, her father and mother. Boaz tells us in chapter 2 that he heard about what she did, that you left your father and your mother and you have come to this land under whose wings that you have taken refuge under God's wings. This is a new beginning for Ruth. New opportunities, new relationships, new people, a new place, and a new relationship with a loving and faithful God. This is a new beginning for Ruth. And in the midst of it, Ruth is experiencing the favor and the blessing of God. Uh, she mentions favor three times in 2.2, 2.10, and 2.12 uh, as the favor that she's experiencing. Chapter 2, she goes to a field under whose sight I shall find favor. Uh, chapter 2, verse 10, I have found, why are you speaking so kindly to me? Why have I found favor with you since I'm a foreigner? Chapter 2.12, Boaz says, may the Lord repay you for the good that you have done because God has given you favor. In verse 13, she says, I have found favor in your eyes because you have comforted me and spoken and kindly to me, even though I am not one of your servants. Everything is new for Ruth. Everything is good for Ruth. Everything is improving. God is healing her, and He's using Boaz, and He's repairing her and blessing her, and this is spilling over into bitter Naomi. This plan represents something. It's not uncommon, Paul Miller notes, that our hearts are tend to make bad moves when life is unfair. Paul Miller notes that our, our hearts make five bad moves when life is unfair. Number one, we can indulge in self-pity, nourishing an internal feeling world of victim. It's compassion turned inward when all we can see is our own loss. And if no one else is going to feel sorry for us, then I'm going to indulge myself in self-pity. Our hearts also turn, in addition to self-pity, toward bitterness, which is a simmering demand that God make right anything that was unjustly done to us. A bitterness is a demand and an anger that God hasn't made right what we feel like in ways that we've been wronged. Third, our hearts tend not only toward self-pity and bitterness, but toward cynicism and mocking, which restores balance by uh, mocking the other person or by taking a heart, a hard-hearted position of cynicism and skepticism. A fourth way our hearts often turn when we feel like life is unfair is we turn to gossip and slander 
which is the desire to create a community of people who empathize with us and only see our pain. Have you noticed that? That we tend to gather toward people, those who see our side and want to share and help us in our pain, even if what we are speaking is gossip or slander. And then a fifth place our hearts turn when life is unfair is emotional revenge, which is the withdrawal of my heart in order to punish the other person for the things that they have done to me or outright revenge. That's where our hearts go when life is unfair. And it's certainly the place that Naomi self-describes, at least one of them, is don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter. The Almighty has wounded me and, and I'm empty. And I, I've been embittered because I went away full and he has caused me to come back empty. John Piper notes that it's in this position that plans are not usually formed by those who are stuck in a place of depression and downwardness. Those who are stuck in this place typically respond to their circumstances and they say things like, I'm just trying to get through. I'm just hunkering down and if I can just get through today or if I can just get through the next thing or if I can just hold on, they're just in survival mode. They're not typically the kind of people who make a plan, but Naomi has a plan and it signals something. Something has changed for Naomi. Back in chapter two, her mother-in-law, when she first comes back, verse 19 says, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. Um, She's giving her a blessing. Look what else she says in verse 19. She told her mother-in-law where she worked and the the man's name with whom I worked is Boaz. And verse 20, Naomi says to her, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Something is changing in Naomi. She's now giving a blessing. Now she's attributing kindness, the Hesed love of God toward Boaz. Now she has a plan, and this plan signals hope and a future. We should celebrate this, and we should notice this, that something is changing even in Naomi. But now let's look at the execution of the plan because Ruth seems to be 100% on board. At the end of chapter 5, she says, all that you say I will do. In verse 6, it says that she did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And so she took notice. She went to, she put on a cloak, she took a, uh, she bathed and she cleaned herself up and she, she did all the things that she said. I, I don't know if, if this has to do with some of the safety measures. Stay cloaked. Wait until you see where Boaz lies down. In other words, don't go to the wrong guy. Don't lay down at the wrong guy's feet. That could be really dangerous. Um, let it not be known that the woman has come. There's some kind of a security issue here. But her request and her proposal... Once Boaz is startled and wakes up and sees the woman at his feet, he says, who are you? She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Did you notice that this is the um, place where she deviates from Naomi's plan? Naomi told her, what did she tell her to do? Go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. But in her execution of the plan, she does something different. She says, um, she uncovered his feet, she laid down at his feet, and she essentially proposed marriage. 
She said, um, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. What's going on here? Is this some kind of a weird, shady scene? It's not if you understand the key words. And the key words are cover and spread. Cover and spread uh, had a nuanced meaning for them. Um, Ruth is uh, mimicking back Boaz's language to her in the field. Look back at chapter 2, verse 11. She's asking Boaz, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? And Boaz answers her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done and may a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is Boaz acknowledging covenant language. You have left everything and you have come to place yourself under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. You have taken refuge in the King, and she is now saying to him in this proposal, I want you to be the answer to that prayer. You said, may the Lord repay you under whose wings you have taken refuge. She's saying, I want you to cover me. She pulled the covers away from him and allowed his covers to cover her, saying essentially, God is my refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear, though the earth gives way. That's Psalm 46. Um, Psalm 18 also describes the language of faith uh, that she would have been expressing. Uh, Psalm 18.1 says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I have taken refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. When she did this gesture, she was mimicking the same thing saying, I want you to cover me. I want to be covered by you. And it was in no way anything shady. It was a beautiful expression of faith and trust. And and I can tell you for three reasons why nothing was shady here. Number one, This was a celebrated love story that was written generations past when it actually happened. It wasn't a scandal that David was trying to hide. It wasn't something they were saying, do you remember when my grandmother uh, went over and and spent the night at the threshing floor and uncovered Boaz and no one asked what happened that night? It's not that. No one was, they weren't hiding this as some kind of a scandalous thing. eyewitness details. Look at verse um, 8. At midnight the man, uh, verse 7, when his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of the grain, and she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. She's reporting what she did. He's reporting what he did. No one had to know what happened, but they were fully willing to reveal anything that happened because nothing shady happened. And you can be further assured that nothing happened that was uh, sinful or sexually immoral or anything like that because he attributes to her as a worthy woman. And everyone knew it. Verse 11, I will do for you all that you ask for 
Everyone knows, me, my fellow townsmen, all know that you are a worthy woman. Now there's some connection here to Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. All the commentaries describe language that is shared. If you were to line up the language, you can make a line from Ruth 3 to Proverbs 31, 10 about the, the wife of noble character, an excellent wife who can find all the things that she does. She works hard. She provides for her family. She laughs at the days to come, all those things. The same word used in Hebrew, a worthy woman that Boaz attributes to her is the exact same word for an excellent wife who can find. A worthy woman who can find. It's the identical phrase used there. So Ruth is a worthy woman and everyone knew it and she had no reason to be ashamed by the thing that she's doing here, asking for his help in her most vulnerable time. The third reason why I know nothing shady happened here is that Boaz is a worthy man and everyone else knew it as well. He's not just somebody who lives his faith publicly, but is a different person in private. If he was that way, he wouldn't have said what he says here in the next section. There's somebody closer to me that who can redeem you. He would have just done what he wanted to do. But instead he says, I can't do what I need to do or what I want to do because there's a redeemer who's closer than me. And if he redeems you, that's fine. I'm okay with the providence of God. I'm okay if I miss out on you, Ruth. If somebody else closer to me, that's a righteous man doing a righteous thing in the middle of the night when no one else would have known any different. He says, there's somebody closer to me and I have to go and ask his permission. I won't go outside the lines, outside of the boundaries in which God wants me to go. He's a worthy man and everyone knew it. She's a worthy woman and everyone knows it. And they've told this story throughout their generations. It was at least known in their family line in David's grandmother what happened. It It wouldn't surprise me if it was known throughout Bethlehem that this was a love story. This is not some weird nuanced sex scandal. This is an insight into faith that takes a risk. So let's look at how Boaz responds to her in verses 10 through 13. He says to her, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. You see how fond he is of her? He said in chapter 2, I've heard what you've done. Your reputation precedes you in that my uh, relative Elimelech died and we all mourned his death. We mourned the death of my relatives Malon and Kilion and we just were thrilled when Naomi came back. But then we heard that you left all your people, your father and your mother, your own gods, your own nation, your own people, your own faith, your own religion, and that you have bound yourself to Naomi. I've heard about all of that. And then she calls him his servant and then they eat together and he he satisfies her with bread and wine, what we talked about last week, and he protects her and he provides for her. In all these ways, you can see that something is developing between them. But then, just like a great show or a movie that you're watching, everything seems to line up perfectly for Ruth and for Boaz, except he's not the next in line. He says, it's true that I'm a redeemer, verse 12, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. What does that mean? Well, leveret marriage was the process by which uh, an Israelite maintained their rights to their property and their blessing and their inheritance by perpetuating marriage 
Even in the case of somebody dying, it just meant that if Elimelech and Malon and Kilion died, the nearest relative, male relative, would come and marry the widow and would perpetuate the name of her sons uh, in her name so that they maintained those property rights. It was a security measure so that Israel could maintain their inheritance of the land. And so it was measured in terms of closest redeemers. It was called a kinsman redeemer. And Boaz was not the nearest of kin. He was one, at least one removed. He knew that there was one redeemer closer than him. So his instructions are stay here tonight. And in the morning, he will rede- if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. That's a hard thing to do. Have you ever had what you wanted and yet had to hold back and say and trust in the providence of God? To be able to step back and say, this is what I want. I'm a single guy. I don't know if Boaz was ugly. I mean, he seems wealthy. He seems like he's got a lot of property. He seems like a a good guy. Um, He doesn't have a lot of, um, I don't know that he's been married. It doesn't say, I don't know anything about him other than he seems to be older and she seems to be younger and they have this blossoming relationship and everything that he wants is right in front of him. And, And yet he has the faith and the righteousness to say, if this other person redeems you, it's fine. Let him do it. But then he pledges, if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. This is a pledge. This is a promise of undying love that mimics Ruth's pledge as well. As the Lord lives in chapter one, uh, her declaration of faith, Um, Where you die, I will die. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. They are making these great declarations. It's an enormous risk. One commentator summarizes her proposal this way. Here is a servant demanding that the boss marry her. Here is a servant, a Moabite, making a demand of an Israelite. Here is a lowly woman making the demand of a wealthy man, a poor person making a demand of a rich man. Was she just naive? Was this foreign naivete? Was this just a daughter-in-law's devotion to her mother-in-law? Or is this another sign of the hidden hand of God which had been leading them all along? From a natural worldly perspective, this scheme was doomed from the beginning as a hopeless gamble, or a means of extortion. And yet, through the eyes of faith, God worked all things out in the most righteous way possible. Finally, look at the provision, verses 14 through 18. She lay at his feet until the morning. The text says she stayed in the position that she started in uh, at his feet but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, presumably to the men who were with him, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And then he said to her, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Uh, If you're keeping score, that's about 90 pounds 
of grain. Ruth is a sturdy gal, right? She's, she's, uh, she's a worker. Uh, she's a weightlifter, I guess. But, but it was no big deal for Boaz to drop 90 pounds and to put it right on her shoulders and for her to, you know, kind of strap that on and say, I got this. It's no big deal. And in the darkness uh, or in the early morning light to walk up into the city with a lot of weight on her. By the way, 90 pounds of grain is, is more than enough for one person. It's a lot for two people. Um, she has been overwhelmingly provided for with this six measures of barley. But look at what she does. She walks in and she comes to her mother-in-law and her mother and her multiple times. There is an element that she is now truly a part of their people. The word she uses for I am Ruth, your servant, denotes um, a wife's role to her family. Uh, it's, a, it's a different word than the word that would have been used for slave. It, it denotes the servant word is used as one who could marry and have children with Boaz himself. This language is for out that, that shows that she is now a part of the family. Then she told her all that the man had done for her and she adds something that Boaz doesn't say in the beginning or that we're not, um, uh, we don't hear from Boaz. Verse 17, these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said to me, you um, <clears throat> must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. Naomi replied, wait my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest but will settle the matter today. Isn't that good? You don't have to wait very long. The, the, the end of this uh, is coming. This matter will be settled today. Let's close with this idea. Uh, in this passage, you see Naomi and Boaz providing for Naomi. And he says this to Ruth, you must not go back empty to your mother-in-law. Have you noticed that play on words? Naomi went away full. She came back and the first thing she declared to all of her townspeople is, uh, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Chapter 1, verse 21, I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And now everything is changing for Naomi. She has been emptied and now Boaz says, she, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She is overflowing with 90 pounds of grain. And this has happened before. Uh, in chapter 2, um, Ruth goes out and works in the field, and she has lunch with Boaz, and she's satisfied with the bread and the wine, and she has so much that she, what does she do with it? She takes the leftovers and, and what satisfied her, she took home and then also satisfied Naomi. She also received grain at the very beginning of the barley harvest. Everywhere we look, Ruth and Naomi are empty and being filled. Every time we see Ruth in a field, she walks away full, satisfied, and going home overflowing with blessings and leftovers and favor. And this is what God does. He fills empty places that are prepared and set apart for Him. 
Think back to Genesis 1 and creation. The earth was formless and empty. It was void. And on each day of creation, God is filling what was previously empty. To Adam and Eve, he told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Exodus chapter 3, when God delivers his people from slavery and he promises them a a new place, he tells them in Exodus 3.21, you will not leave empty-handed, but I will fill you. And they plundered the Egyptians. In Deuteronomy 15, it says in this law that if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you, that person shall serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, you shall let that person go free in the year of Jubilee. And when you let him go free, you shall not let him go empty handed. You shall furnish him or her generously out of all of your flock, out of all of your threshing floor, out of all of your wine press. As the Lord God blesses you, you shall give to him and you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt in the place in which God redeemed you. Redemption and emptiness comes with God filling and it overflowing. In 1 Samuel twelve twenty, um, Samuel said to the people, um, because you asked for a king and it was evil, don't turn aside from following the Lord God, but serve the Lord your God with all your heart. And don't turn aside after empty, worthless things which cannot satisfy you, nor deliver you, nor will they profit you, for they are empty. That's 1 Samuel 12, 21. I can understand this principle negatively And many times, I just feel empty. And I feel like I'm ministering out of my flesh. And any time that happens, I'm not going to the Lord to experience the overflow and to minister out of the abundance. I find myself resource guarding. You ever do that? I have nothing less to give. And I remarked to a guy who asked me how I was doing a few years ago, and I said, sometimes I feel like a well, and everybody I see is a bucket, and they just want, they just want to come, and they just want to take something from me, and, and I just feel empty. And his challenge to me was, if you're ministering out of your flesh, you will always be empty and protecting what's left. I've understood that principle negatively, that when I minister out of my flesh, I feel more empty But I've also experienced the goodness when Jesus is my satisfaction and when I'm looking to Him and Him only to satisfy me, when I'm emptying myself on His account and with His power, as Philippians says, uh, Paul says, I labor with His energy which so powerfully works within me that when I go to Him for the sustenance that I need, the power that I need, that I'm not only filled and satisfied personally, but what he uses to satisfy me personally overflows and everyone around me is satisfied in the same way that Ruth is satisfied and the overflow satisfies Naomi. The hardest part is getting to a place where you and I are willing to empty ourselves of placing our hope and trust in something else that we think will satisfy us and getting to a place where we're looking to the Lord to fill us in our emptiness and satisfy us. Have you ever been there? 
It's the same language that is carry your cross language. It's selfless love language. It's the greatest among you must be the servant of all language. It's mimicked in the downward path of humility and obedience that is described in Philippians 2, 5 through 7, where Jesus is uh, described as being in very nature God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Jesus did not consider his position, his lofty position of equal with God, something to hold on to, but he emptied himself. You see the the process that Jesus emptied himself. And in that downward spiral of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Paul writes and says, have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who in, in very nature was in the form of God, but did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He lowered himself emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself lower and became obedient, obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you see the downward spiral in Philippians 2, 5 through 11? That Jesus had the highest position, but didn't stay there in the way in which we want to stay in an exalted lofty position but he continually empties himself and takes this pathway of carrying his cross. And the results are, verse 9, Philippians 2, 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now isn't that counter intuitive to our flesh. Jesus emptied himself completely, taking the nature of a servant, humbling himself, becoming obedient, obedient to death on a cross. Therefore, God does what? He exalts him and he lifts him up and he he gives him the name that is above every name and, and he says, at your name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus invites us into that downward path of emptiness. Now I'm preaching to myself more than any of you here. Um, this is for me as much as it is for anybody that, that when we try to hold on to us and we seek things that don't satisfy us, Jeremiah calls them broken cisterns that don't hold water. When we lunge for something thinking that it will satisfy us um, and in every way we try to meet our own needs and, and satisfy our own selves in whatever ways that we can, God is saying that the way that you can finally do this is to empty yourself to take on the nature of a servant and to serve others in humility. And that in that way, he longs to fill those places that we've emptied and prepared for him. Isn't that beautiful? I'll close with this story from 1 Kings 17. Elijah walks into Zarephath thirsty. He's a weary prophet and this is a foreign territory And he goes into this place, and when he walks into the gate of the city, a widow is there, and she's just picking up a couple of sticks. And Elijah looks at her, and he says, he called her to himself, and he said, bring me some water and a vessel so that I can drink. And interrupted, I assume, uh, as she goes to bring it, he calls after her, and he says, and also bring me some bread so that I can eat. Why did Elijah do that? He, he's asked this woman for water, and then he, he calls out after her and bring me some bread. And she says, and looks back at him and says this, 
as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread baked. I just have a little bit of flour in a little jar with a little oil in it. And even now I'm gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son so we may eat it and die. You hear the desperation and the lowliness in her position? I have nothing left but what uh, the very little left in the jar of flour and oil and I just need two sticks and I'm going to make a fire and I'm going to make it. This is our last meal and you want me to give it to you? You want me to give you water and you want me to bake this bread and take the last of it? It's a bold demand for Elijah to say, give me everything you have left that you intended for yourself. But she does it. Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me the bread and bring it to me. And afterward, you can make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her, she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Isn't that beautiful? Picture of emptiness, a picture of giving all that you have and submitting it, yielding it to the master so that he may continually fill it and provide. That's what he asks of us as we give our lives to Jesus Christ, not to withhold anything, but to give everything that he may fill it. And so Lord Jesus, we thank you for this picture of the beauty of a redeemer who knows yourself that when you emptied yourself of everything, it wasn't until it was all spent at the cross, until every single breath was given in your dying last moments, that once you had given everything, that life could not come, but only resurrection life comes with the emptying of the life that we had before. And so for myself and for all those who are listening today, my prayer is that we would follow you in a path toward emptiness, emptying ourselves and seeking only that which will satisfy us. Described in Ruth 2.14, when Boaz prepared wine and bread and gave it to Ruth and she was satisfied and had leftovers. May we also be satisfied only in you alone, Jesus. That we would not look to something else to satisfy us. Not a relationship, not a substance, not an experience, not money, not homes, not possessions, not vacations, not purpose and career. May we be satisfied in nothing but you alone. That we may be overflowing so that others may experience and taste the goodness of God. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.